0: pray for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to your scriptures. We ask you, Father, that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better, so that we might be led to Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and open us up to you. Fill my voice and my words that we might see Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So, do all of you know what a mic drop is? Not everybody. I I, I got a lot of quizzical looks at eight o'clock, <laughs> but I figure I figure most of you in this room probably know what a mic drop is. There are certainly a lot of memes out there of mic drops. Just in case you don't know what I'm referring to, a mic drop is the gesture of intentionally dropping a microphone. At the end of a speech or at the end of a performance, it's a bold way of signaling your confidence, your triumph. Drop the mic. Boom. You know what I'm talking about? Just nod your head if you don't. All right. Comedians and rappers have been doing this for a long time. I think the first time I ever saw it was when Eddie Murphy did it in the movie Coming to America. Randy Watson. Anybody know that movie? Sexual Chocolate, boom. And then he walks off the stage. He's front man for a very bad R&B band, and it's a big joke, of course, but he drops the mic. The most famous drop the mic moment came a few years back when President Barack Obama did it. He did it on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, right? And he drops the mic at the end of his bit, and of course it got millions of hits on social media, Basically, a mic drop is an exclamation point. It's a way of saying, that's it. There's nothing more to be said. What do you think about that? Boom, drop the mic. In our gospel lesson today in Luke 4, we get a drop the mic moment in the synagogue in Nazareth as Jesus is preaching in his hometown. Now, if you haven't been with us, and just to bring you up to speed, we're going through a deep dive into the gospel of Luke this year, um, where we are in the narrative. Remember, this is a narrative account that Dr. Luke is writing for us. It's a forensic exploration of the person of Jesus so that we might have certainty and so that we also might see how Jesus is the fulfillment of what God has said in the Old Testament, where we are in the story. Jesus has been baptized. The father has spoken loudly from heaven so that all can hear, this is my son with whom I am pleased. The spirit comes upon him in power, immediately leads him off into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. He's tested as he's fasting and praying in that place and the spirit then leads him again in power, having completed the test, having not given into the temptations of Satan, he leads him north up the Jordan River Valley to the area of Galilee, which is basically a circular, mostly circular region surrounding the Sea of Galilee, which is not a sea at all. It's a big inland lake. Okay? I don't know why they call it a sea. It's fresh water. And so Jesus is preaching in that area for a couple of weeks, a couple of months before we get to today's gospel. And the word about him is spreading. Everybody's speaking about him. Things are starting to move, like, whoa, what's up with this guy? This is amazing. And that's where we come to our text. In Luke 4, starting at verse 16, you might take it out. We'll look at some verses together this morning. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll. Let's pause just for a minute there. Just so you understand what's going on, uh, they would stand up to read, they would sit down to teach. And they didn't have nice, handy Bibles like we do that are bound and easy to find your way through. They had big scrolls for each book of the Bible. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him, these are pretty large things and you've just got to let your creative imagination get into that place, he starts unrolling the scroll. How far does he have to go? Chapter 61, it's almost the end of the book. He's, he just see Jesus up there, unrolling, 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 unrolling. The people are like, what's going on? He's unrolling. There's no chapter breaks, by the way. There's no verses labeled, but he knows his Bible. Jesus knows the scripture very well, and he's very intentional about where he goes. It is such a dramatic, not melodramatic, but a dramatic moment as he's up there, just unrolling that scroll, going to the place that he specifically wants to find on this particular day. And then he reads, verse 18, from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll, roll, 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 and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue are on him. Yeah, you think? They were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he put out his hand and he dropped the mic. Boom. I I made that part up. It's not in the text. Now let's talk about why this is a drop the mic moment. He basically says, people, you just saw the Bible happen right in front of your eyes. Now, who expects that on any given day? The Bible just happened right in front of you in real time. This book that we all reverence, that we all carry around, they would kiss it and they would bow before it. They, did, they, didn't, I, I, all, uh, they didn't like worship it, but they, they so revered it. This book that we all revere, that we shape our lives on, yeah, it's about me. It's all about me. And specifically. This part right here about the Messiah, it's all about me. The words, guys, that the prophet Isaiah spoke 700 years ago, they just started to happen right now, and you are here for it, just for the price of admission today. It's all coming through me. What was it that Isaiah said? That the Holy Spirit, that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, would empower someone, would anoint someone. That's language for Messiah, for the Lord, for the Christ, for the King, for the unique one and only agent of God. And that person would proclaim good news to the poor. He would proclaim liberty for captives, sight for the blind, liberty for the oppressed, and the year of God's favor the drop-the-mic moment for them, of course, begins with Jesus saying, it's happening right now. What do you think about that? That would raise an eyebrow or two, I suspect, but not so much yet because it sounds pretty good at this point. Now, I, I want you to notice something about why and what, about what Jesus does as he reads that, uh, that verse from Isaiah. As he's reading, he stops halfway through the middle of verse 2. He stops with the words, the year of the Lord's favor, and he doesn't read the second part of the verse. He literally stops mid-sentence, which says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops before that second part that says, and the day of the vengeance of our God. What is up? He ends his reading on the subject of grace. He specifically, intentionally, purposefully says, my ministry and my mission is to give God's grace. My first coming is to proclaim and enact the good news of salvation by grace through faith in the Messiah. Now, here's the thing. He'll later talk about the fact that that part, the day of the vengeance of the Lord, the day of our God, that day will come one day. And his disciple, John, will talk about it in great detail in the book of Revelation. You can read that for yourselves later. It's great reading. But what he's saying here is, as I have come to begin my ministry as the Messiah, I am ushering in an age of grace. Everybody say grace. He's here to usher in grace. The day of the Lord will come. How do we know? Because the first day that he came, came the first day that he was brought to do, occurred. But the time in which God's anger against sin, that is at a place in which it's on hold, if you will, in a sense. It's in reserve. Now is the time of grace so that all who embrace Jesus as Messiah, as their Savior, will receive God's mercy. Totally mind-blowing and totally radical, Does anybody have a little inkling of a hallelujah in their heart? Back bless you, back Because if you don't, either I'm not preaching well today and somebody better start praying or you're not listening. The age of grace has begun in the person of Jesus as he reads those very words in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. The vengeance of our God, which will come one day, is on hold for a season. While this season, this epic, this age of grace is playing out and it comes through him. Now we need to look at how they responded, because it seems pretty good at first. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words. See that? Gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But that's actually when the problems started to begin. See, what they did was they did what people often do when it comes to God. What people do when it comes to God is we tend to misunderstand. We tend to specifically misunderstand him, his purpose, his ways, and we misapply what he's saying based upon our personal agendas. Everybody say personal agenda. And our cultural presuppositions. I won't make you say that. That's a lot of syllables. Our personal agendas and our cultural presuppositions often cause us to misapply, misunderstand, misinterpret what God is up to, what God is saying. And that's what's starting to happen here with Jesus. Verse 22, they say, isn't that Joseph's son? And there's a variety of responses, I think, that are happening in that sentence, right? There's a couple people there who are like, wait a minute, isn't that the kid that used to do wheelies on his bike, like in my backyard? I'm making that up, but you get the point, right? That's that kid. And and there are a few of them who are going, you know, wait a minute, that's the guy, I used to take my table to him to get fixed at his dad's carpenter shop. By the way, he did a really good job on it. Yeah, you think? He's there, his mother and his brothers. And if he's got sisters, and most scholars would think that he does, they're all sitting there too. This is a small town of about 400 people. Everybody knows everybody, and they know everybody's business. His brothers are there. Any, any siblings in the room? The brothers are sitting there, right? And, and they see Jesus doing this. And, and can't you imagine them going, there's our older brother, always the perfect one. And now he thinks the Bible's about him too, right? (laughs) A few others are probably thinking, small town boy, he's going to get it big. And that means good news for us because we stand to do well based upon that. You know how I know that? I was talking with my son a couple weeks ago. He's been in the mission field over in the Philippines and in super impoverished places, right? People eat garbage in a lot of these places. And, and just abject poverty, and then they were in this one place, this one town, and he's like, it was like a totally different place. It's like It was clean, right? the streets were nice, it was safe, you could go out at night, I was like, what's the difference? He said, oh, it's the hometown of the president of the country, and they stood to do really well because like, people take care of their own, especially if you come from a small town. These folks are thinking like this, all these kind of thought processes, very human thoughts, the kind that we have, they're having those same kind of thoughts about Jesus. And that's when Jesus bends down and picks his mic back up. He says, hang on just a sec, guys. Uh, I need to clarify your thinking on a couple of points here before you get ahead of yourselves. Verse 23. Doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Now this is a future tense. Doubtless, you're gonna quote me this proverb. He's speaking prophetically at this point. He knows what's going to happen, not only here in his hometown in Nazareth, but as, as the, this is how prophetic often operates. The prophetic has an immediate application in the specific instance, and then it tends to branch out and move forward into the future. And so he's speaking about the people there in Nazareth, but he's also giving a word that they are uh, they're just part of a larger whole of the people of God in Israel, right? This is going to happen all over the place. Doubtless you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. Now, I'm going to get ahead of our story just for a minute. We'll come back to it. If you come to our Good Friday services, you're going to hear this. This is Jesus on the cross. This is when he's between the two thieves and it's at the point at which they're still hurling insults at him. The one thief hasn't repented at this point. And he says these words, and this is in Luke 23 verse 34. And Jesus said, hanging there bloody on the cross, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. The enactment of grace itself happening, his words being spoken and what's going on. The fulfillment of his prophecy at Nazareth. The soldiers are under his feet throwing dice because after all, this is a dead guy and he's got a pretty nice coat and we'd like it. And the crowds are standing around there doing what crowds do. They're like, duh, what's going on here? And it says this. But the rulers, that's the rich. That's the religious, that's the insiders, that's the people who think they know better, and most assuredly, the self-righteous. Those folks are standing there and it says, they scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the Messiah, the chosen one, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself, prove it. Jesus is saying, look guys, you think you're gonna benefit because you think you know who I am, but I have to tell you something. Your agendas, your personal agendas, your cultural presuppositions, those are not binding upon me. And that begins to make people really angry. But not quite yet, because he starts to tell some stories, as Jesus often does. He doesn't just give us propositional truth. He has a way of speaking a story to get around our minds and get to our hearts so that we actually see ourselves. And he tells these two stories, and I won't go into them in too much depth, because you can go read them on your own. But he he tells two stories about prophets of God. He tells one about Elijah and the other about Elisha, These are two of the greatest prophets in Israel, two of the people through whom the grace, everybody say grace, the grace of God came and the power of God came. But he says, remember Elijah, in that time in which the great famine was over the people of Israel because of their idolatry, when a great famine came and he went out, And the provision of God came to a poor widow who was an outsider who was a Phoenician and it didn't come to the people of Israel. And then he tells the story about Elisha right on the heels of that. He says, remember Elisha? The one through whom God brought healing and deliverance. There were all kinds of lepers in Israel during Elisha's day. But God sent him to Naaman the Syrian, a general, by the way, who had actually fought against the Israelites and was the cause of death of many people in that nation. And they got so mad at him. It says in the text that they were filled with wrath. Everybody say wrath. Now that's a Bible word, isn't it? They were filled with wrath. They were tanked. They were so mad. And they tried to kill him by pushing him out of the synagogue, taking him up to the top of the hill, that the town is built off because they want to throw him off the cliff. They're so mad at him, but of course he gets away. I love the way the message translation says it. Eugene Peterson writes, but Jesus gave them a slip, which is a perfect rendering of the text, right? Because it has this feel of like, where'd he go? And supernatural, and what happened here? We were under control, we had this thing, and and we couldn't control Jesus. Imagine that, they're gonna find that a whole bunch of time. See, what's happened there in those stories and in Jesus' speaking about himself, he says, I am the Messiah. I am the one that the whole Bible is about. I'm the one who is the fulfillment of what God said, what happened, and I've come to you to give you grace. There will be a time for judgment, but I have come to give you grace. And they thought, fantastic, but here's the thing. Their idea of what grace was about was limited to them. They thought, grace, God's favor, that's for us. We're insiders. We're the descendants biologically from Abraham. We're the ones who were given the the Ten Commandments. The men would say, and we bear in our physical bodies the mark of circumcision, which shows, of course, we're the people of God. We're the, the ones for whom this is all about. And Jesus' stories say, no, 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 no. Grace is available, but it's not based upon what you think is based upon. It's not so small that it's limited to one little nation. I am way bigger than that. And they don't like that very much because that's a cultural presupposition that he is cutting across. They assumed grace, God's mercy, God's favor, the kingdom, all this stuff he's talking about, right? Freedom from poverty, freedom from captivity, we're going to be number one, it's for us. But then there's the group of people within the us of Israel, the religious folks, who are like, it's really for us, the good people, the people who show up to Sabbath, like Jesus did every Saturday, every Sunday. It's for us, the good guys, who keep the law, and we do what's right. We have it together. And Jesus says, no, it's not for you at all. It's only for the people who know their absolute need for grace. And it doesn't matter what nation they're from. And it doesn't matter how broken they are. It doesn't matter how lost they are. It doesn't matter what their present looks like or their past. If they know their need, if they're desperate for salvation, it's for them. But the religious folks usually miss that because they tend to think, you know, I'm doing okay. I got this thing. Yeah, you know, I need God, but really I'm kind of doing okay. And he, he made them really mad. He usually does that to religious people. Now, this grace is for everyone who comes to me in faith to receive salvation. So let's apply this, and we need to apply it in two ways. First, let me talk to the religious, to those of us who kind of are insiders. And you might, you know, maybe you've been around in church for a while. Maybe you say, yep, yeah, I believe and you've been doing this for a long time, we particularly have to be careful because we particularly are subject to becoming like these guys who ended up so mad at Jesus because he didn't do life the way they thought it should be done, that they, they were ready to kill him. So I would never do that. Oh my gosh, I've seen this over and over and over in the church. I've felt this way myself at times when I'm following you with all of my life, I'm trying to do the right thing, right? And then life goes sideways and haywire. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. I thought you loved me. Why aren't you treating me better than this? What's going on here? And disappointment can creep up and anger at God can creep up. I have seen people walk away from Jesus who I had also seen proclaim as loudly as anybody else, I'm all in. I love grace. I'm I'm his. But then their plans get thwarted, or God calls them to a place they didn't expect, or something happens, life is hard, and they end up walking away, showing that grace really never took root in their hearts. There's a warning religious folks like us. Just, just I have to lay that out there. I'm, I'm your pastor, I love you. This is a warning for the spiritual life. We've got to be careful because we could end up like them missing grace, and deciding, this is the other thing, who deserves it and who doesn't. Now, here's the really good news. If you have a past, and if you're messed up in the present, then the message to you today is grace. The message for you is grace. If you have a past, and you are messed up in the present, the message for you is grace, unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't achieve it. But if you recognize in your life that you're poor, whether that's literally poor or spiritually poor, if you're blind, like you want to know, but you can't figure this out, if you've been oppressed by some kind of addiction, some kind of mistreatment, some kind of violation, some kind of brokenness, it doesn't matter. Some kind of physical ailment, some kind of, of got kind of a behavioral issue, grace is for you. The good news is that the Savior is here for you. And he will meet you right in the middle of your sin, your brokenness, your hurt, your disappointment, whatever it is that you carry. Shame? How about shame? You know, I met with a, a young man a couple of weeks ago, and he was six days clean from a heroin addiction. So that's not very clean. It's clean, but it's not very clean. And like so many people in our generation, uh, he got hooked on opioids following a surgery with too much prescriptions, and then that became eventually a heroin addiction. Kid grew up in the church, but not a church where the, you know, as I, we talked, where he knew a whole lot about grace. He knew a lot about rules and behavioralism and, you know, religion. And as we were talking, you know what was all over him because he had to admit to his parents and his friends, and here he was talking to me, his desperate shame at where he had ended up. And as I talked to him about Jesus, there was both this incredulity. There is this, this, how could he possibly care about me? Do you know what I've done to the people around me? Do you know where I've ended up? Do you know what a mess I have made of my life? And I said, yep, grace is for you. And there's this battle going on over him between self-loathing and hatred and shame and the disgust at where he was and how captive he was. But there was this little tiny flicker of hope I could see within him as we talked about the prodigal son. And we'll get to that story in a few weeks or months, somewhere in Luke 15. He was so desperate for good news. He's still clean, by the way. He's been to meetings since then, and he's, you know, he's doing steps, and he's got a sponsor. He's doing the things you're supposed to do, and I pray by God's grace that that young man will be free. Such good news. You don't have to be a heroin junkie to need grace. It's just the heroin junkies sometimes recognize a little more clearly than those of us whose lives are kind of together. They often recognize their need for it more than we do. Here's a message, grace, grace, God's grace. You know your need today. Jesus is dropping the mic. He's saying, it's for you. I'll clean you up, I'll set you free, I'll make you mine. But beware, beware, nice religious people, that we don't miss grace. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us today. Thank you that you do mess with our personal agendas because you love us enough to do that. And you do break apart our cultural presuppositions about who gets it and who doesn't because you want us to be free. Lord, we know that sin is the second biggest thing in the universe. The only thing bigger is your grace. So let it take root in our lives. And then let us be good news to the people around us who they themselves need grace. We pray Jesus in your name, amen.